You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, in Sinclair Ferguson's book entitled The Whole Christ, he considers the gospel through the lens of something known as the Marrow Controversy which took place in the Church of Scotland in the early 18th century. Distilling the writings of pastors that are known to us today as the Marrow Men, Ferguson concludes with them that there is a tendency, even in the evangelical church, to separate the benefits of Christ from Christ himself. He writes, Wherever the benefits of Christ are seen as abstractable from Christ himself, there is a decreasing stress on his person and work in preaching. This is accompanied by an increased stress on our experience of salvation rather than on the grace, majesty, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ferguson encourages us all to ask a question, whether we be preachers, or congregants. He says this, ask yourself, is it obvious to me and of engrossing concern that the chief focus, the dominant note in the sermons I preach or hear is Jesus Christ and him crucified? Or is the dominant emphasis and perhaps the greatest energies of the preacher focused somewhere else? perhaps on how to overcome sin or how to live the Christian life or on the benefits to be received from the gospel. All are legitimate emphases in their place, but that place is never center stage. The same question can be asked more starkly in our techno-sermon age when many Christians listen not only to preaching in their own church, but to their favorite preachers in the contemporary galaxy. Is the dominant theme, the lasting impression, the most natural word association in relation to the preaching I hear, Jesus Christ and him crucified, or is it something else? Open your Bibles to Romans 10. We're going to be looking today at a a relatively well-known passage or a relatively well-known verse in particular, Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But even as we're going to make our way to Romans 10, allow me to sketch a little bit of context for us, beginning with what Paul has written in Romans 9, 1 and following. If you've been with us through this series, you know that Paul begins Romans chapter 9 by expressing his grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He expresses his burden for his fellow Israelites that they are by and large rejecting Jesus. There are, of course, the soaring promises of Romans 8 that, above all things, nothing in all of the universe can ever separate us from the love of Christ. But yet, so many of the Israelites, God's chosen nation, so many of them have rejected Jesus. So maybe God doesn't keep all of his promises. Maybe he's not, but so faithful. Or maybe Jesus isn't the Christ. And so Paul in Romans 9 through 11 defends the faithfulness of God and the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's word. 
And he makes clear yet again that Jesus is undoubtedly the Christ of God. The word of God, says Paul, has not failed. And God's people say, amen. The Lord has always saved his people. It is not the physical offspring of Israel or Abraham that are the true people of God. It is the children of promise whom God has called from both Jews and from the Gentiles. God saves his people solely by his grace and mercy, not based on anything foreseen in them or done by them. He bestows his mercy freely on vessels of mercy, and he passes by others. But in all of this, God is not unjust, and the riches of his glory are pointedly on display through his work in redemption. Throughout, Paul appeals to Moses and to the prophets to indicate that this has always been God's plan to save a remnant of the Jews and to save people from the Gentiles as well. He asked this question, what shall we say to all of this? His answer is that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness were given righteousness through faith and that Israel who sought to establish their own righteousness through their works under the law, did not attain righteousness. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus. And it is always those, beloved, who trust in their works who stumble over him. But for all those who do trust in Christ for righteousness, they will never be put to shame. Paul begins chapter 10 by reiterating his desire and his prayer for his kinsmen to be saved. And he says, they have a zeal for God, just not according to knowledge. They are ignorant, says Paul, of the righteousness of God. Ignorant of the righteousness provided by God and revealed in the gospel. Ignorant of the righteousness that God gives to sinners through faith in Christ. They sought to establish their own righteousness, says Paul. And in doing that, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul grounds everything in this, that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law does promise life to everyone who keeps it. The problem, of course, is that we've all broken it. So God sent Jesus for us. For our sin and in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The moment a person believes in Jesus, the end of the law is attained in them. That is, it is fulfilled in them. The righteousness of the law is found only in Jesus Christ for the sinner. Paul appeals to Moses to demonstrate the difference between the righteousness of the law that's based on works and the righteousness that's based on faith. The righteousness based on faith is not far off, as though we need to do something to attain it. Rather, it is near. By faith in Jesus, God's people are justified. By faith in Jesus, God's people are saved, and God's people gladly confess Jesus with their lips. 
Paul again then cites the prophets, Isaiah and Joel, to demonstrate that everyone who believes in Jesus and calls on his name will be saved. It does not matter who you are, and it does not matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Paul continues to show that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles as children of promise. And he logically has opened up what we will be considering today. And that is that Jesus Christ is to be preached to all people. And so let's now look to the text, beginning in Romans 10 and verse 14. I will read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time is to give this message in four points and then a brief conclusion. Four points and a brief conclusion. Point one, Jesus is to be preached to all mankind. Jesus is to be preached to all mankind. Let's look at verses 14 to 17 together for the next several moments. In verse 14 into the beginning of verse 15, we see that Paul, having established the fact that Gentiles are being saved by God, they're being called by God, having established the fact that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he goes on to write of the necessity of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the necessity of preaching the gospel to all mankind. In doing this, by the way, he's validating his own ministry and the ministry of the apostles because they had been commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're familiar with these words and the logical flow of his argument. How will people call on someone of whom they've in whom they've not believed. You only call on Christ if you believe in him. How are they to believe if they've never heard of him? How are they to hear of him without someone preaching him? And how are there to be preachers unless they're sent by God? And of course, this has occurred. What is the takeaway from these verses? It's pretty simple. Is it not that Jesus should be preached indiscriminately to all people? Pretty simple. If people from every tribe and tongue and nation are to receive God's mercy, which they are, 
It will only come to them through Jesus Christ and no other way. Jesus is the one who lived and died and rose again that God's mercy might be extended to Jew and Gentile alike. And notice in God's plan that he uses the foolishness of preaching to accomplish all of his purposes of redemption. Notice as well, not only the foolishness of preaching, but perhaps we might say the foolishness of using men to preach. Fallen, broken, sinful people. It's not that God's voice booms from the heavens. It's not that angels come and bring the message. We, fallen human beings, preach this good news, and God, being the kind of God he is, saves many. We are saved by Jesus, and we are saved in coming to know him, and we come to know him through the preaching of him. Second portion of verse 15, if you put your eyes there, Paul cites the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 52 and verse 7. He cites the prophet to demonstrate that God himself commends the preaching of his gospel. God himself, I don't know if you've thought about it like this, commends the preaching of his gospel of peace. This pleases God and delights the Lord that the gospel would be heralded. Now, in the context of Isaiah 52, the good news that's spoken of is actually regarding the Jews' deliverance from exile. And we would understand that this typifies a greater deliverance. It points to a greater work of redemption that's coming. It points as well, if it's good news to be heralded that Israel is being delivered from exile, how much more so is it good that preachers of the gospel commissioned by God would take the good news of Jesus to the nations? That's what we see in Paul's citation of the prophet. Verse 16, while it is true that whoever believes in Jesus will be saved, not everyone who has heard the gospel has believed, nor will everyone who is yet to hear it believe. Paul cites Isaiah again, Isaiah 53 and verse 1, to convey this very thing. Lord, who's believed our testimony? Who's believed what he's heard from us? In spite of the goodness of the news, in spite of the incalculable blessings of receiving the news, many will reject it. But we should not be discouraged by this because the Lord has told us that it will be this way. Really briefly, but it's a significant observation for us to make. You see the sentence that opens verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Regarding that language of obeying the gospel, I wonder how you would answer the question. What does it mean to obey the gospel? To obey the gospel, beloved, is to believe in Jesus. Period. Sometimes people use this phrase to justify introducing demands and conditions on the gospel, to make the gospel sound hard. But this really isn't difficult to understand. We obey the gospel through the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5. 
Romans 16, 26. The obedience of faith is obedience to the gospel. To obey the gospel is to place faith in Jesus Christ. To look, obviously, from yourself. Look away from me, my notions of my own righteousness. Look away from my sin. And look to the only one who could atone for sin. The only one who could be my righteousness. The only one who could ever give eternal life. And faith in Christ is accepting, receiving, and resting on him alone for justification, for sanctification, and for eternal life. Verse 17, a well-known verse, as I alluded to earlier, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In God's economy of salvation, the preaching of the word of Christ is effective. Faith is produced by it. Faith is produced through it. The apostles communicated the word of Christ with their voices and also in their writings. And it is precisely through this word that faith comes. Now, obviously, we're going to reflect more on this later in the message. But for now, we move on to point two. God will save his people. Point two, God will save his people. Let's look at verses 18 to 21. Verse 18, Paul asks this question. I ask, have they not heard? Referring here to the nations, have the nations not heard the message? He says, indeed, they have. And he appeals to Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So Paul here, don't miss this, is continuing to demonstrate that it is legitimate to preach the word of Jesus to Gentiles. It is legitimate to preach to people who are not Israelites. That's what he is contending for. Notice how Paul applies Psalm 19. He appeals to the psalm to contend for the legitimacy of preaching Jesus to all people. Now, the observant in the room will know that the early verses of Psalm 19 refer to not human beings declaring the glory of God, but the heavens declare the glory of God. But Paul, in his application of the verse, notice what he does. There is, of course, the literal meaning of Psalm 19.4, that the heavens themselves proclaim that God is God, that he is, that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And then... There is the spiritual meaning of Psalm 19.4 that Paul gives us here. Paul sees that ju just as God has never left the nations without a witness altogether, even that of the sun and the moon and the stars, it is entirely appropriate then that God, just as he has spoken to the Gentiles at a distance through the creation, would ordain and appoint men to preach him and his son explicitly and directly to the nations through preaching the gospel of Christ. God had never left the Gentiles altogether without a witness, and as God had always spoken to them at a distance through the creation, even this pointed to his plan to make himself known to the nations explicitly and directly through the message of Christ. 
Verse 19, Paul then asks, but did Israel not understand? Did they not know that the Gentiles would be brought into God's salvation and that they, through unbelief, would be rejected? Did they not know? Did they not know that Gentiles would be shown mercy and that through their own unbelief, they would be rejected? The Hebrew scriptures, after all, testified about this repeatedly. But in this instance, Paul cites Moses, Deuteronomy 32.21, in the well-known song of Moses. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In other words, there's nothing illegitimate about God saving the Gentiles in the face of Israel's unbelief. Nor is this a new development. This had been foretold by Moses himself. Verses 20 and 21. Paul now is going to appeal to the prophet Isaiah. And he says that Isaiah speaks perhaps an even stronger and bolder and clearer word about all of these matters. He cites Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, where the Lord says that he would be found by those who did not seek for him. And he would show himself to those who didn't ask for him, i.e. the Gentiles. Now, brief note, as we've thought about before, those words, I will be found by those who do not seek me, or I have been found by those who didn't seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That is the testimony and the truth about every believer that has ever lived. That's your testimony and mine. Not that I have found God, not that I was looking for him, not that I was seeking Christ, but that God in his grace sought me. That Christ in his mercy came to seek and to save the lost, who had no idea what they were doing or where they were, and certainly were not seeking him. Christ is the seeker, and we are the found. So find in these words of the prophet a representation of all the saints that we have been found by God, though we didn't seek him, and that we now see him, though we never asked for that. How great and rich is his mercy and grace. As for Israel, though, you can see in verse 21, God says that he had continually held himself out to them, but They had been disobedient, and they had been contrary. In other words, they had rejected him. And so, many of them would in turn be rejected by him. Now, in Romans chapter 9, the sovereignty of God is primarily in view regarding his saving of only a remnant of Israel, and then his rejection of many. But in our verses today, Israel's rejection is shown to be a direct result of their own unbelief. The declaration of Isaiah 65, too, that all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people is obvious in every portion of the Old Testament. Significant question for us as we think in particular about God's saving grace. 
as far as advantages, as far as privileges and blessings, as far as revelation, as far as demonstrations of power and demonstrations of mercy and grace, as far as all of those things are concerned, what outward means did God not use in order to induce Israel to believe in him and love him and honor him? I'll wait. There are none. God used every outward means conceivable to induce Israel to trust him, believe him, love him, honor him. The Lord had indeed held his hands out to Israel all day long in perpetuity, yet they did not believe. They didn't submit, as Paul had written, to God's righteousness. And this text today is one of many where we see that, yes, the Lord is sovereign and the fault is the fault of man. Now also consider this regarding God's effectual grace. Grace that saves, right? Not grace that makes salvation possible, but grace that saves. Consider, without God's effectual grace that gives life, doesn't just offer, gives life to dead sinners, all of the revelation and advantages and opportunities in the world would save no one. Israel is exhibit A. Apart from God's effectual saving grace, the entire nation of Israel would have faced judgment. There would have been none who were saved. And in Israel, we see ourselves. In Israel, we see the character of fallen man. In Israel, we see what the result would be if the entire world were given every advantage with respect to salvation. If every single person in human history were given every advantage with respect to salvation, but God did not do all the saving, heaven would be empty. If the Lord had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. There would be none who would know him, none who would love him, none who would trust in him. The only hope of miserable offenders, and when you hear that language, miserable offenders, that means me and that means you. The only hope of miserable offenders is not that God has made salvation possible for sinners. It's not that God has given revelation and privileges and advantages to sinners. The only hope is that God himself saved sinners. He does it all from the beginning to the end. Point three. God himself commends the preaching of his gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the message of Christ, and so he is what we preach. I'll say that again. That's a long one. That's a Puritan heading if we've ever heard one, right? God himself commends the preaching of his gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the message of Christ, and so he is what we preach. Put your eyes on 
the last phrase of verse 17. Your your Bible, the ESV certainly says this, your Bible most likely says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's a good rendering. I don't often talk in these terms except when I think it's important. That's a good rendering of the original. The language in the original is through the message of Christ. That's the wording there. So this is not through the word of God, as it would often appear, but it is through the rhema, the message of Christ, is how hearing comes. Some people will quote this verse and say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's misleading. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the message of Jesus is the emphasis of the apostle. This is important. We preach the whole counsel of God. We preach the law in its uses. All of that is good and necessary. And it is the preaching of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for righteousness, and for eternal life that saves sinful people. Period. Consider Paul's testimony elsewhere, even in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 1 and verse 15, you remember that Paul, in greeting the saints in Rome, what does he say to them? He says, I am eager to come and preach the gospel to you. Which leads him into verse 16 and 17 that we know so well. I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. When Paul says in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, what he clearly has in view is the preaching of that gospel. He's not talking about the gospel in ethereal terms. He's not talking about some kind of secret mystical revelation. He's talking about the preaching of Christ, the heralding of Christ that is the power of God to save even the chief of sinners. Then he ends the letter. We're going to get here eventually. Romans 16, 25 to 27, he writes these words. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So it's not only that you're saved by it, you're strengthened by it too. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Through the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, the nations are brought to faith. Through the preaching of Jesus Christ, we have been brought to faith. We are being brought to faith. Through the preaching of Christ, we are strengthened. Through the preaching of Christ, we are sustained and nourished and protected and kept. Beloved, this is because the gospel brings us all the way home. This is because the offer of the gospel is the offer of Christ himself. The good news is not a benefit you receive. The good news is Christ for you. 
And to come to him and to be united to him is to be eternally saved. Anyone who is united to Christ, anyone for whom Christ is mediator, anyone for whom Christ is high priest, is forever and always safe and reconciled to the Father. Union with Jesus means justification. Amen. Declared righteous on account of Christ, forgiven of sin, absolved of guilt. Union with Christ means sanctification. He is the fountainhead of holiness and the source of all sanctification. And because of our union with him, union to the living vine, we will bear fruit. We will be transformed. We will be changed. The streams of sanctifying grace that flow from Christ will never run dry. Union with Christ means, beloved, in short, eternal life. Everything, and by everything, we mean everything, that we need for salvation is in him. Yes, it is true, as was acknowledged earlier today, the already and the not yet. It is true that we await our glorification. It is true that the full realization of all of these things is yet to come. And at the same time, being in Christ, coming to Christ, trusting in Christ means that all of the blessings are really ours even now. What we receive in the gospel is Christ himself. And so, Thomas Boston, who was a Puritan, but one of those marrow men that I referred to in the introduction, his conclusion was this, because we receive in the gospel Jesus himself, it is therefore certain that the focus of public preaching and private pastoral ministry must be to hold out Jesus. For my money, I think he's right. And it squares with the testimony of Christ. We heard from John chapter 5 earlier this morning, but I would draw your attention again to verse 39 of that chapter. If that's not a verse you know, write it down and look at it regularly. Where Jesus is saying to a Jewish audience, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. All of Scripture is to be understood in light of him. He is the point of all biblical revelation. And so, the right exposition of any passage of Scripture must find its yes and amen in him. Any sermon that does not have Christ as its crescendo any sermon that do, does not have Christ for sinners as its ringing note is a failure. The scriptures do indeed contain the words of eternal life, and that is only because the scriptures contain the words that are about Jesus. I trust that you feel this. 
And maybe you're in one of those seasons where you're not feeling much of the things of God and take heart even there that he has you. But I trust you feel this. If you know your constitution, if you know your flesh at all, if we walk in here this morning with even an ounce of sanity in our hearts and minds, we know that Jesus is all we've got. He's the only hope that wretches like us could ever have. Paul, for his part, said to the Corinthian church, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that resonates with me as a preacher. Because Jesus is all I have to offer. I love the members of Covenant Baptist Church. And if the members of Covenant Baptist Church are dependent upon my wisdom, God help us. I'm a fallen man and a broken vessel, and the only good news that I or any of the pastors of this church have to offer is Christ. We might be wrong about a wisdom call. We're not wrong about Jesus. And as a preacher, I understand that it is my job to continually hold Christ out, certainly to any unbelievers that are with us on a Sunday. If you're here with us today and you have not trusted Christ, sinner, lawbreaker, like me, like the rest of these people, look to him alone as the only one in whom you can find forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. But I also understand that it is my job to hold Christ out Lord's day after Lord's day to the saints because he is our life. He is our justification and sanctification and our peace with God. God himself commends holding Christ out to lawbreakers and heralding him to sinners. And so the tone of the preaching in this church, we pray and trust will sound like Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You have nothing. We have nothing to bring. This life is beyond being able to put a value on it. And yet come and buy it, receive it with no merit, with nothing of yours, but receive it from the hand of Christ. or even speaking the language of our Savior, where he says to sinful people, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. How did the apostles preach the gospel? How did they call people to faith in Jesus? This is an important thing for me and for us to consider. You know, they didn't, they didn't put a bunch of qualifiers on the thing. They didn't engage in some of the nonsense that we do sometimes. You know, well, if we hold to a definite and particular view of the atonement, can we tell people that Christ died for them? We, to our shame, often talk like this. Or if we hold to the doctrine of election, should we look for evidence of election in people in order to hold Jesus out to them? Shame on us that we would ever think these ways. The apostles didn't point sinners in on themselves either to their own fervor or intensity of feeling. 
to their knowledge even of their own sin. What did they do? They preached the person and the work of Christ. They preached Jesus is able to save everyone who comes to God through him. They preached there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. They preached, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you couldn't be freed by the law of Moses. They preached that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We preach Christ crucified, said Paul. And indeed they did. Point four. This is another long header. Apologies. Marvel at the scripture. Marvel at the plan of God in Christ. And marvel that God commends the preaching of good news. I'll say that again. Marvel at the scriptures. Marvel at the plan of God in Christ. And marvel that God commends the preaching of good news. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Isaiah 52. And I think we're going to try to get the words on the screen. We're turning here because Paul cites these, these verses. He cites Isaiah 52, 7 in particular. I alluded to these verses in their context earlier. But if you look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 52, the Lord is speaking a good word to his people. He is telling them that he will bring them back from exile. He is telling them, in other words, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to save you from the plight in which you find yourself. Then in verse 7, he commends the preaching of this good news of deliverance. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God commends the preaching of these things. In verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 52, it's very plain that these things bring joy. The proclamation of this deliverance brings joy. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Then verse 10, he says that all the earth is going to see his salvation. You see it there. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Pause. What comes next in the book of Isaiah? One of the most famous passages about the suffering servant of God. Who is he? What's he going to come do? We just read about deliverance. God's going to save his people. This brings joy. The whole world is going to see it. And then we read Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be 
exalted. In other words, he is the Lord's salvation that the world will see. And you know many of the verses that come after where this servant of God is going to be despised and rejected by men. He's going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will be as one from whom men hide their faces. He would be despised and we would esteem him not. And the reality is that he, the servant of the Lord, who is the Lord's salvation, he would bear the griefs and the sorrows of his people. The reason that he was smitten and afflicted and stricken by God is because of us. He was wounded, not for his own transgressions, but for ours. He was crushed, not for his own iniquities, but for ours. He was chastised. And he did that not so that he would know peace, but so that we would know peace and so that we would be healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him in our place and to put him to grief. But even in this passage about his work and his suffering, we see that after he's made an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. In other words, he will live forever. Out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see, he'll be satisfied. Jesus, right? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Because of the what? The joy that was set before him. By his knowledge shall this one, this Christ, this servant of God, make many to be accounted righteous, and he would bear the iniquities of his people. And therefore, his inheritance would be great because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with sinners. And he bore their sins and he makes intercession for them. Don't miss this incredible connection in the prophet Isaiah. Deliverance from exile, the preaching of good news, which brings joy through the Christ of God. Marvel at the scriptures. The preaching of the gospel did not originate with the apostles. The preaching of God's salvation through the Messiah has always been God's plan and God's design. And all of the saints of all time have been saved by him through faith in that message. And now a brief conclusion. So I've talked a good bit about the apostles. I've talked some about what our hope as the pastors of CBC would be regarding the preaching of good news here. But what about Jesus? What about the one who is the good news? How did he preach his own gospel? Now, we've considered many times that Jesus in his earthly ministry spoke a lot of words that were law, not gospel. But he did preach the gospel too. So when he preached the gospel, what did he say? You can turn in your scriptures if you have them to Matthew eleven twenty five. And again, I think the words will be on the screen. Look at verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 11. 
They read this way. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, that is surely sovereign grace if I've ever heard of it in my life. That's, dare we say, unconditional election. But what does he say next? Verse 28, skip there. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, when Jesus preached his own gospel, his invitation to sinners was, come to me, come. And here's the beauty of it. To be weary and heavy laden are not qualifications or conditions that a person has to meet in order to come to him, in order to be united to him. No, they're assurances that no one is disqualified from coming. Weakness, unworthiness, sin, guilt, shame, none of these things stand in the way. Jesus is not for the qualified. He holds himself out precisely to the disqualified. And he delights to do so. Is the yoke of the law heavy? Do you see how far short you fall? Are you wearied by your own corruption? Are you weary in fighting against sin? His word is, come to me. Trust in me. Cast yourself upon me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come, wandering souls, and find your home. Hide away in the love of Jesus. He offers the rest that you yearn to know. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Come, guilty ones, weighed down with sin. Hide away in the love of Jesus. The freedom you long for is found in him. Hide away in the love of Jesus. The offer of the gospel, beloved, is the offer of Christ himself. And from one struggling sinner to many struggling sinners, what else would we do but come to him? Let's pray.